Okay, we're back. We're live here on Transitional Justice on a given Monday at four. I'm Jay Fidel. This is Think Tech Hawaii, and our guest is in Maryland now, but he's from Rwanda in Africa. Uh, his name is Gerald Gahima, and he is with Project Expedite Justice, which is headquartered in Kona, Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Gerald. Thank you so much, Jay. So um, this is a very interesting topic. It's uh, it's it's all about lessons from UN tribunals. I'd like to take a moment and dwell on two factors that are intertwined here. One is the United Nations. How is the United Nations doing? You know, I like to think of the United Nations as having emerged from the uh, adversity of World War II, where everybody was on the same, the allies, if you will, were on the same page there in 19, what is it, 45, 46, 47. And they were of, a, of the same mind trying to make a better world. Okay, that, that was simple. But then since then, the United Nations has changed. So has the world. Um, the United Nations is now rampant with geopolitical competitions, politics, and there are certain countries who want to stop all progress at the United Nations. And that has undermined its, um, its, its ability to, to get good outcomes. Am I right? in that regard. You're very right. Uh, so your question is, how is the United Nations doing? The United Nations does honor as much good as the major powers want it to do. So like during the Trump uh, administration, he was not really interested in having strong multilateral institutions. So the UN did not have the support it needed to do whatever it would have wanted. This administration uh, is more interested in working more effectively through international institutions. So this presents a better opportunity for the international community to do good when it's necessary. But on issues relating to human rights, um, there are major powers in the United Nations too, um, countries like China, like uh, Russia, which are never really interested in uh, pushing for strong accountability on matters relating to human rights. And the UN can only do what countries that are interested in human rights are able to do after consultations with and negotiations with those other powers that don't really want to place emphasis on, on human rights. So the, the United Nations is on a tool and it's a tool of compromise. And that makes it um, a particularly weak institution. Mm, yeah, problematic. The other, the other dynamic I wanted to ask you about is, um, is atrocities and violations of human rights. Now, it could be that my generation wasn't really watching as we you know, went through school and grew up and started to read the newspaper and so forth. And, and we, we didn't really have a handle on the dynamic of atrocities and uh, violations of human rights. Um, but it just seems to me that in the past, say, 10 years, maybe 20, since the genocide in Rwanda, um, we've had 
increasing amounts of atrocities and violations of human rights. I don't, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a movie by Ai Weiwei called Human Flow. No, um, unfortunately, to know. It, it, he, it makes a, he's an artist and a dissident in China, actually out of China right now. Um, and he, he helps us understand that there are displacement camps around the world which hold something in the order of 65 million people who um, don't have a country, a life, uh, a citizenship, a, a possibility of, um, of any quality of life. And that number is increasing. And I take it from that, from his examination in that movie, um, maybe to overgeneralize it, but to generalize it and ask you whether we have increasing amounts these days of human rights violations and atrocities, including those in China and Russia. Um, atrocity is as old as man. So there have always been um, atrocities, uh, horrendous atrocities in history. Uh, traditionally, international law did not concern itself with how a country treated its own people. You could massacre half of your population so long as you did not kill foreigners, that would be okay with other countries. Now, the, the development of the uh, field of human rights um, beginning in the last 200 years has slowly brought um, up awareness about uh, the need to respect human life. But it was not really until you know the whole the horrors of the Holocaust that it became imperative for the international community to at least take a stand and say, you know, atrocity is not acceptable. Never again should it happen. And then since 1948, uh, the genocide convention was uh, passed. A lot of other treaties were also adopted. And in theory, um, atrocity became illegal, uh, unacceptable. But because of the competition between uh, world powers, the East and the West, that body of law uh, that upheld human rights, that criminalized atrocity, existed only on paper. Uh, so although it was not acceptable, there was no way to hold people accountable. It's only since the 1990s, uh, with the establishment of the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, that the effort to, to hold people accountable for atrocity in practice became very real. And Rwanda benefited uh, when the Rwanda genocide happened. It was so horrendous that the international community could not, after establishing a tribunal for Yugoslavia, they could not but have one for Rwanda as well. And what made the establishment of the UN tribunals possible is, is the end of the Cold War. Uh, there was a better atmosphere for international cooperation 
on dealing with atrocity. So there is no increase in atrocity. Uh, there is just more awareness about atrocity and a slightly better chance of holding people accountable today than we had in the past. So the mechanism that we think of is the United Nations uh, and the uh, uh, International Criminal Court of Justice, which is associated with the United Nations. But how effective has that been? And here's my dynamic question again, Gerald. Is it, is it um, becoming more effective or, or is it losing its effect, the, the ability to achieve acceptable outcomes in its operations, in its determinations, in its investigations? How effective? Um, the, the UN tribunals, the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the tribunal for Rwanda were really a pilot project for the International Criminal Court. Uh, we have to understand that this uh, justice processes uh, are really political processes. Uh, international criminal tribunals are only as effective as the major powers want them to be. So for example, for the tribunal in Rwanda, a lot of people who committed the genocide um, ran away after they lost the war. Other countries, the people where they were refugees would not be willing to uh, hand them over. So every single person who was surrendered to the tribunal or surrendered because major countries, especially the US, pressed the countries where they were refugees to hand them over. So there was political will on the part of the US to hold perpetrators of the genocide accountable. On the other hand, um, there were um, atrocities that were committed by the victorious government of the Rwanda government. The US did not want members of that government to be held accountable. So what happened is that we have only what you would call victor's justice. The people who lost the war were held accountable, but the victors were not held accountable. And the impact that has had is that the justice that the tribunal, the Rwanda tribunal has rendered, instead of bringing people together, instead of uh, promoting reconciliation, it has been one thing that divides us even further. With regard to the, the Yugoslav tribunal, um, the, it, that has been more effective in bringing all parties to the conflict um, to account. So I, I would say that the, the record is not uniform. In some places, there has been more success than failure. In, in some places, they've been more successful, and in some places, they've not been uh, successful. The, now the UN tribunals, of course, uh, have closed their shops. The, the current institution is the, the International Criminal Court. The big problem uh, with the International Criminal Court is that look at the conflicts that take place today. Um, 
you know, whether you, you know, Syria or Iraq or, you know, uh, Yemen or Libya, those are not just national conflicts. They are international conflicts in which major powers, the United States, uh, Russia, uh, members of NATO, um, you know, all the Middle Eastern countries, Iran, all of them are involved. Now, the International Criminal Court to date is only really able to bring to justice uh, crimes that are committed by small fish, you know, warlords in some countries, but it's never able to bring to justice uh, crimes that are committed by the militaries of the major countries or the parties to conflict they support. So for example, if you look at the war in Syria, there are all these Syrian groups. They have benefactors in the major countries in the Middle East and across the world, but we do not expect justice for those crimes because Justice through international criminal justice is a political process. Uh, the International Criminal Court is only able to do what the major powers wanted to do. And they would never be able for, there would never be a situation where, for example, you could hold Iran accountable uh, or Israel or Turkey or the United States or Russia for supporting groups that commit human rights abuses in Syria. That's the way it is. So it, it's a, a justice system that is only effective against weak parties, but is not effective against uh, the big powers or the groups that they support in conflicts across the world. Very troublesome, Gerard. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Gerald. So what 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 I what I want to ask you though is how this works. In other words, um, suppose I'm a judge, mm -hmm. or a, or an investigator, or a prosecutor, um, and my job is to um, investigate, prosecute, um, and punish people who have committed atrocities. Then I decide that um, say Russia which is uh, holding uh, Navalny against his will, who is, uh, it's an outrage what they are doing. Um, and I decide that there's a, an atrocity going on there. Or I look at China and I look at, um, uh, what is it, Xinjiang in the West with the Uyghurs. And I say, there's, there's an atrocity going on there or, um, um other places in china where there are retraining camps and those are actually torture camps and i say there's an atrocity so i say i say to my investigator maybe it's project expedite justice so would you please investigate that um or i say to my prosecutor would you please prosecute that or i have investigated and um, activated a prosecutor and i go to the court and I say, I want you to hold Vladimir Putin responsible for what's happening to Navalny and so forth in, in China, uh, or for that matter, in the US. Um, what happens 
to block that prosecution. What, what does China or Russia, or for that matter, the United States do in the context of the management of the United Nations to block that process? You, you say that um, the, the big powers uh, will be able to stop these prosecutions. How do they do it? Oh, easy. Uh, to start with, like, let's start with our own case in this country, the United States. The US government has preempted the possibility that its troops could ever be held accountable for crimes committed in conflicts anywhere by getting other countries what we call Article 93 agreements. This is an agreement that stipulates that we country Y agree with the United States that we shall never under any circumstances cooperate with any effort to hold the US military for any crimes they may be accused of committing in any country. So the US I think has signed more than 100 of these agreements with other countries. I recall when I, when I was in Rwanda, the, the US government brought it to us. We did not even discuss it. Uh, I mean, you're a small country, you're vulnerable, you do what the US wants. So we signed it. So have many other countries. Um, so the US takes a, a proactive role by signing this Article 93 agreements. But the bottom line is that if a big country, an important country, a powerful country wants to block an investigation, they just stop uh, cooperating with the tribunal or any international tribunal because you know uh, neither the International Court of Justice uh, nor the International Criminal Court have a police. Uh, for enforcement, they rely on the international community. The mechanism for ensuring international peace and security is the Security Council, where the five major powers have veto powers. So you never get the five powers to agree uh, that action be taken against any one of them. And all that any of these powers would have to do if they were being investigated, is to just ignore it because there's no way for the court to, to enforce whatever decision that it may want. Uh, but they go even further. The Trump administration uh, did actually impose sanctions against the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, during the last ad administration. It's only recently that the Biden administration has lifted those sanctions. Uh, so far from cooperating with the International Criminal Court, you actually criminalize, criminalize the court and decide that you, you are treating them like criminals. Hmm. It can go that far. We have to discuss this further, uh, Gerald. So you've been writing, uh, you've been uh, books and articles and studying this for some time. Um, and um, perhaps you can give us a handle on how much you've been writing and what subjects you've been covering so we can understand the depth of your thinking about this 
and uh, understand what, what affirmative suggestions you believe are worthy to solve this problem. Okay, my background, I, I told you I'm from Rwanda. Um, uh, prior to the 1994 genocide, I was a commercial lawyer, so I was not involved in criminal justice. I only became uh, involved in justice for the genocide because I went back to Rwanda to help the rebuilding of the country. And what happened is that, you know, during the conflict, um, three quarters of the Tutsi community in Rwanda were killed. Um, if there were a million people, maybe three quarters of a million people perished. Uh, when catastrophe on that scale happens, you cannot do nothing. We had to do something. So you have to do justice because First of all, because the victims demand it, and they did demand it. You have to find ways of holding people accountable because you need to send out a message that these crimes are unacceptable, they should never be committed again. You have to address the question of impunity. And you hope that by having justice, uh, you can create an environment for creating a peaceful, stable society for the future. So we started um, having investigations, but after a while we realized that uh, mass atrocity is not, it, it, it cannot be dealt with uh, through the ordinary criminal justice system. So we've had accountability through processes. We had prosecutions through the courts. We had um, trials, through traditional courts. And of course we had the UN tribunals. And I was the prosecutor general of Rwanda. So I led the investigations and prosecutions of the Rwanda genocide in national courts. And I was also involved, I was the chief collaborator of the UN tribunal for the crimes of the Rwanda genocide for which they were responsible. And since leaving Rwanda, I have done research and um, some writing on this. My PhD thesis is on this subject. And that has given me the opportunity to think not only about what has happened in Rwanda, but what other countries have done in uh, reckoning with legacies of mass violence. So it, it's, I, come to this with a background, not about, not just about what happened in Rwanda, but about my scholarship of what happened in the former Yugoslavia, where I was involved in the setting up of the National Court for war crimes, and in other countries where they've also had to deal with the accounting for violence of the past. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, no, so that's part of it. But the other part I wanted to ask you about is we have a, you can correct me on any of the uh, premises that I'm articulating, but we, we have um, a fair amount of atrocities going on now. We have greater public awareness, but the United Nations uh, seems to be uh, unable to deal with it. 
um, and the, the geopolitical politics uh, and competition among the major powers, uh, you know, makes uh, a lot of it un unreachable. Um, sacred cows, if you will, that nobody can touch. And I'm asking you, based on your scholarship, what can be done? What should be done to correct this? Because the United Nations is a function of the international community. And it, it certainly seems the international community has demonstrated a weakness uh, to focus on this subject, on the issue, the problem. Um, what can the international community do? What can anyone do um, to make this uh, an even playing field? Good question. Sorry, I forgot that part of your question. Um, do you want my honest answer? Yes. My honest answer is I don't really see any prospect for holding uh, the sacred cows, as you call them, accountable. Take Syria as an example. Um, Bashar al-Assad is supported by Iran and Russia. He's protected. Uh, would Russia ever agree that the Security Council takes measures to refer the case of al-Assad to the International Criminal Court? Highly unlikely. Um, I recall that the US has also had partners um, in the war in Syria. Um, it's conceivable that some of those have also committed atrocities. Would the US agree that it's the, the groups that it has supported, their leadership be held accountable for the crimes their troops may have um, committed? Again, unlikely. And the reason is um, when a state or its officials help war criminals, its own officials become liable for criminal prosecution. The former president of Liberia, uh, Charles Taylor, is in prison, not because he committed atrocities in his own country, but because he helped uh, groups in a neighboring country, Sierra Leone, to commit atrocities. So by the same uh, principle, the leaders of the US, of France, of Russia, uh, who have supported groups that have committed, of Turkey, uh, of the United Arab Emirates, of Saudi Arabia, who have supported groups that have committed uh, crimes in Syria, would be liable for criminal prosecution themselves. So I don't see any prospect of holding the sacred cows accountable. So what is my approach? Since it's so difficult to hold sacred cows accountable, it's more important to work harder to prevent atrocity than to have faith 
injustice for crimes that have been committed. So I, I would wish that everyone um, works today to prevent conflict, uh, to prevent uh, atrocity, to promote greater respect for human rights uh, before atrocities are committed. Because in many cases, the prospects um, for justice are almost non-existent for many of these crimes. Well, let me ask you about uh, civil actions. If you're, you know, your um, original practice was as a commercial lawyer, you know about civil litigation. And in fact, Project Expedite Justice is involved in some civil litigation against people who violated the human rights of others. Uh, one case right. I'm familiar with is, is, is pending right now in France as a better venue than in the United States. Uh, but, but theoretically, if I can find a uh, receptive venue and I can sue in a civil action somebody who conducted uh, atrocities, um, call it tort law. You know, it's a violation of tort law in most places. It's a, it's an automobile accident, you know. It's a, it's a civil side of, of, of criminal conduct. And so suppose I take, take a page out of that book and I say, I, I, I have an investigation here that shows that somebody, even a, even a national leader, uh, violated the rights of an individual, the human rights of an individual, and I take that person to a court uh, in a country which has money belonging to the individual I'm suing, and I try to get a judgment against that person for a violation of rights, uh, <clears throat> wouldn't I be able to get that judgment? And how valuable is this approach in the, in the larger landscape of trying to diminish the, the you know, the, the, the violations, uh, the global violations of, you know, of uh, human, human rights violations. No, you, you're right. That, that's a possibility. Um, in fact, under US law, uh, I think it's the Aliens Thought Act. There are two pieces of legislation in the US uh, under which it's possible to bring civil actions against perpetrators of atrocities that were committed in other countries. Uh, so, so if they are individuals who have committed crimes, you can bring action against them in the US, uh, even if you don't know that they have assets in the US. The problem is that they may not have any resources in the US. Uh, or in the countries where you brought the case. So it's a horror victory when you get um, a verdict in your own favor. I know there are people who, for example, uh, brought suits against people who commit, who participated in the Rwanda genocide and they were awarded millions. But of course, these millions were never recovered. Uh, it is very possible that they are dictators who have resources in other countries, uh, but a lot of the people who commit atrocities in this conflict don't have bank assets in the countries where you are likely 
to bring these uh, proceedings. So it's it's a moral victory, um, but it's not going to be a deterrent uh, because they don't have the resources mm -hmm. to to lose. One other one other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, is the media. You know? uh, in in a number of places in the world, not everywhere, um, there is freedom of the press, and sometimes that is um, you know an appropriate way to um, to propagate the news about human atrocities, human vi violations of human rights. In other places, it's more difficult. Um, but, you know, in, I guess in, in a number of places in the world, the news is distributed between nations, among nations. So if, if it appears, uh, say, in, in France, it's likely to appear in the U.S. and so forth. Um, some countries, it's never going to appear at all. It'll be effectively censored. And in China, for example, they censor what they don't want people to know about. Um, but my question to you is, is this a viable option to discourage atrocities, to have um, the media report on these things and with the assistance of investigators, of credible investigators, such as PEJ, um, and um, make the world aware that a given organization, institution, or national, a nation, has been engaged in atrocities and and bring the details to the public awareness um, to discourage uh, repetition of that conduct. Is this effective? And I guess the second part of my question, Gerald, is <clears throat> is the press doing a good job at that or not? Okay, so first of all, uh, is it effective? Yes. Um, the reason the UN tribunals were established is because of the advance in technology that made instantaneous communication possible. So every time a bomb fell on the Sarajevo market, there were journalists on the spot uh, willing to take the footage and distribute it instantaneously. You know, politicians, um, for example, the Clinton administration, for I can say for certain that they were never keen to do anything about the Rwanda genocide. When it was happening, that was after Somalia. You know, you remember Black Hawk when American troops were killed and you know driven pulled through the streets yep. after black hawk the u.s government the clinton administration decided they did not want anything to do with uh protecting the victims of the rwanda genocide so the secretary of state uh during the clinton administration told his staff he was called warren christopher he told his staff not to even refer to what was happening in Rwanda as the as a genocide, because if you have a genocide, you're obliged to act. But you know, there, there was media that was transmitting 
uh, you know, all these piles of dead bodies. So the Rwanda genocide could not be ignored. Neither could the atrocities um, in Bosnia be ignored because of, you know, the level of technology that was being put to use. So the international community was compelled to act to set up the tribunals. Now we are in an even better situation because it's not just the big media organizations that have the resources, but any person with a camera can take footage and transmit it across the world. And, you know, dictators, uh, perpetrators of atrocity, they, they care about their image. So documenting human rights violations uh, through the media and disseminating this documentation through the media is very, very important. So for example, in, in Sudan today, you know, when the military took over government last month, they started a new crackdown on dissent, on opposition, on human rights defenders. So there are many people in that country who are working today to document what is happening as a way of equipping uh, those who are doing advocacy for democracy in Sudan. So the media, uh, I think, is doing a good job. Um, and that's why, for example, when, like in the Sudan, uh, when the military took over, the first thing they do is to cut off access to internet because they know what harm and effective media can do to their reputation. Dictators care about their reputations too. So the media is doing a good job uh, in disseminating information about atrocities. And it's a weapon that uh, can be used and should be used to, to press you know, people who are abusing human rights to amend their ways. One last thing I wonder if we could cover, uh, Gerald, and that is the international community such as it is, including the international business community. And uh, when you talk about Sudan, you make me think of uh, the, um, the, the military coup there, the leaders of the military coup that was really terribly unfair. And it was um, a violation of the agreement they reached uh, not too long ago in, for the rotation of power in Sudan. And uh, there was a certain reaction by the international community and uh, the President Biden said he was gonna withhold $700 million of funding that, that was otherwise uh, supposed to go to the military government in, um, in Sudan. And, <clears throat> but, the, but the consensus seems to be that that did not have a great effect, uh, the withholding of that money. It hasn't been released yet. Um, and it did not have a great effect. But putting the United Nations itself aside as an organization that has, has become less powerful, less influential in terms of dealing with atrocities and violations of human rights, what about the international community? The community that takes, um, that takes, its, um, uh, it takes its, its thinking, its policies from the media, from investigations, in the media and says, well, we are gonna, we'll try to use our soft power in, uh, you know, in Sudan or else, elsewhere. 
and will condemn anyone publicly, my country, not the United Nations, but my country will condemn anyone who is uh, involved in human rights violations. And further, we will uh, impose sanctions. We will withhold funding. We will not do business with any government that is engaged in violations. And, uh, and furthermore, uh, we will criticize any other nation that does business with them. Um, now, I know that uh, you have to be very powerful to do those kinds of things, like the United States has done over the years. But I wonder if the international community can be activated in a different way, a way different than the United Nations, and can take steps to follow on discoveries of atrocities through the media. You know, you... Yeah, just suggestion is is actually on point. Um, it, it's not upholding human rights is not just something we should leave to government. It's something that civil society should should occupy itself with. If you look at, for example, South Africa. Um, one of the reasons change came to South Africa and apartheid came to an end is the pressure that the international community was able to master uh, by th threatening to withhold investment from South Africa, by threatening to impose embargoes. And Many countries were supportive of, some countries were supportive of the regime, but ultimately the apartheid regime uh, realized that it would hurt their, the economy of their country very much if they did not change. Um, and even now, for example, Sudan, for example, is facing a terrible economic crisis. Um, the economy is teetering on the brink of collapse. They need access to international finance. They need loans from international finance institutions like the World Bank. If the business community would also uh, get involved and threaten to divest, um, it, it would have an impact. And even the the actions of government, they've not been totally ineffective. Um, there are governments like you know, Egypt, like Saudi Arabia, that, like the United Arab Emirates, that are supportive of the military in, in Sudan. But I believe some of the changes we are seeing, like the agreement that was uh, announced yesterday, uh, where they are at least agreed to restore the prime minister. These are possible because uh, I think countries like the US have been able to get the Saudi Arabias, the, the Arab Emirates, Egypt, to put pressure on their Sudanese allies to reach some compromises. So I believe that pressure by governments coupled with uh, pressure from the business community 
can um, create an environment where the military um, um, may be willing to to make some compromises. So mm, yeah. I agree to your suggestion. Yes, the the international community and especially the business community can can make a difference. Mm. The international community, especially the business community, can make a difference either by withholding investment or by withholding um, uh, loans uh, that some of these countries uh, depend upon survive. Well, <clears throat> I'd like to see that myself. I mean, I think that um, companies should have consciences and countries should have consciences, consciences that are uh, international consciences. Mm -hmm. uh, Gerald, we're out of time. Gerald Gahima uh, from Project Expedite Justice joins us from Maryland. He's originally from Rwanda. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Gerald, and helping us understand these complex issues. Thank you, Jeff. Aloha. Aloha.